Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 27, 2020. This is episode 2589 of the Survival Podcast. And as we're rocking on toward episode 2600, it'll be like no time at all and we'll be there. It's Monday. Time for a listener feedback show. These are some of my favorite shows because it's really uh, completely controlled by you guys. Uh, I know I'm talking about what you want to talk about because you've sent me an email that said, I want you to talk about this thing. So if you'd like to be uh, featured on a show like this or have a certain subject discussed or have me answer a question for you, you can just send me an email to probably the most public email address on the internet today. I, people are, I was wondering if I could get your email address, jack at the survival podcast.com. No, your real email address. No, that's, that's my real email address. That's the one all the email goes to. I don't have a screener. I don't have a special person that takes care of it. I read all my own. Well, I look at all my own email. I'm not going to say I read it all. I will tell you how to get it to be more likely that I'll read it. There's two things to do. Number one, TSPC in the subject line. TSPC in the subject line. I don't care what else you put there, but TSPC first. Like it's a word, like an acronym, TSPC for, for the Survival Podcast. And if you do that, it'll get, I'll find it because even if it goes in the junk folder or whatever, I search for that particular term. The next thing is bottom line, upfront format, bluff, which means this is my question or this is my point. Here's a link if there's a link. And now here's details if you have details. And For the love of God, learn to use paragraph breaks. A lot of you, not just when you email me online, when you make comments or whatever, giant blocks of text hurt my head and a lot of other people's heads, and they won't read it, and I won't either. So there you go. All right, so what do we got today? Quote of the day, I'm finally going to give you the Thomas Sowell quote I keep talking about and forgetting to do. I'm not going to screw that up today. Spearco2020.com is live. I am running for president, and I'll remind you again why you shouldn't vote for me and let you know about the campaign that we are enact, you know, going on here to uh, to maybe wake up two people in America, three, four, five, I don't know, whoever wants to wake up. I just want to kick people a little bit in the head and make them think. Make them think about some of the slogans they just chant mindlessly. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. You have slogans you chant, and they really don't help solve problems. Next, I'm going to talk a little bit about the space program. And our return to the moon, and why we should even care. And why, even though this is the coolest thing the government does, I can see why government's not making that big of a deal out of it right now. And uh, it might make you think, and that's, uh, that's something I like to do around here. Uh, some cool seeds are being made available by the Cherokee Nation. They're being marketed as rare and limited. They're not really that rare, but they are cool, and I'll tell you about that. Uh, I love the new Micro-Roni. I've had a couple questions about the new Micro-Roni. You're like, what is a mi Macaroni? No, Micro-Roni. Um, this is a conversion kit. They do it for other weapons, but primarily for the Glock. And you take your Glock handgun and you put it in there. And in this case, you have a kind of wild-looking handgun with air quotes, hand, like Dr. Evil, handgun, right? That's uh, really a SBR that you can get away with through a legal loophole. Pretty cool. Uh, so I love the new Micro Roni conversion, 
But, we'll tell you about the but when we talk about that segment. Question on the nutrients I use in hydroponics, how I determine how much to use, and why for right now I actually like Synthetic Master Blend. Why that's the main thing that I use. Um, I also use another one called Texas Tomato Food that was recommended by a guy from the audience. I like it too. But in general, I think that for most people, starting with Master Blend is probably a great idea. And I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you how to... Well, you know, you say, how much do I use? Well, this is one of the reasons that I use this stuff, because it's it's an absolute known quantifiable number. Uh, using rotting wood in the garden, and this is not hygge culture, but there is a fancy name for this. It's a Korean technique. It's not really the Korean technique, but it's kind of the Korean technique. We'll, we'll talk about that and uh, why you might want to do this. And, uh, Nick Ferguson's method for doing it. That he, he taught at a class at my, sh at my, uh, my place here a long time ago, and I, I do think it's a great way to go. Um, Follow-up on dispatching injured deer on the roadside. So we had a question I took a while ago about got a deer on the side of the road. Animal's not going to make it. Not going to survive. It's not dead either. And it's laying there suffering. And you want to do the right thing and humanely dispatch the animal. How would you do that? Uh, this is something I actually thought of, but for one reason or another didn't mention during that segment. And so we'll, we'll come back to it. And I'll say, you know, there's still the caution on this. Um, CBD and drug testing. And I have a question on this. I'll tell you my thoughts, but why I probably still wouldn't. Um, and where I think the future is going on this. Um, uh, there's a guy that wants to know if he can use the water from his basement sump to water his garden. And I'll tell you why the answer is, yeah, no, yeah, but no, uh, especially under the circumstances here. But there's a great way to use it and water your garden with it, but yeah, but no, but you have to do something else. And um, I have a question on somebody had a friend on next door, a neighbor, has a koi pond, wants to know, well, how do I, you know, provide backup power for my koi pond during these, you know, routine blackouts in California so all my fish don't die? And as always, the cheapest backup power is a simple generator, and we'll talk about how a lot of times I think when people start looking at, like, standby generators, off-grid power and all, they overlook the simple, easy-button answer of a good little generator, especially for something this simple that is also this critical because, trust me, if you have a, especially koi ponds, because they're generally shallow, that thing shuts off for any extended period of time during warm weather and you have floating dead, stinking, rotting fish. All of that and more in just a minute. Before we get into all of that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle Royal was the first company to sponsor the Survival Podcast, and they've been with us ever since. They give away their, their uh, membership, their discount membership for free to members of the Member Support Brigade, so they're a huge supporter of ours. Uh, most people pay $29 a year for that. You get it free for life. So I think that's a hell of a deal. You get discounts on almost everything they sell, and what do they sell? It's like a superstore for all your prepping needs. From the practical to the tactical and everything in between, you will find it all at safecastle.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. I, I, Knife Kits is another long-term sponsor. Been with us almost since the very beginning, almost since we started taking sponsors. Uh, they do a discount for MSB, and you know they're a company that says what they do and does what they say, Knife Kits. 
You get the kits you need to build knives. You get a lot of other cool stuff, like uh, there's there's a stuff there to do, like uh, Kydex projects and things like that as well. And you can go from the true kit knife to raw materials for the master bladesmith and just about everything in between there if you check them out today at knifekits.com. With that, let's dig into this. Let's let's talk about the Thomas Sowell quote that I've talked about twice and not actually done. I was going to do it Thursday, and then Jeff Lawton changed the subject of Thursday's show, so I used a Jeff Lawton quote. And then I was going to do it Friday, and I put it in the show notes, and I wrote it down, and I put the picture in for Maisie quotes and all, and then I didn't mention it at all during the intro uh, or any time during the show. So let's get to it now. I think it really fits in with me running for president and uh, maybe a reason you shouldn't vote for me. And I think this will actually be one of my don't vote for me videos. The very first don't vote for me video came out this morning. It's on my YouTube channel if you want to check it out. But anyway, this is what Thomas Sowell said about politicians, politics, the state, electing our representatives, etc. He said, it's hard to imagine a more stupid or more dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions into the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. You know, people ask me why I'm an anarchist, and often it's because it's the only thing that makes sense to me anymore. That if you have the ability to make decisions for others without the consequences for being wrong, then there is not a lot of incentive for you to make sure that you're right. In fact, what the real incentive then becomes is how does it best benefit you and what you want. And I want you to think about how true this statement is, because I know what some people would say. If, if I, and you said, Jack, come up with a logical objection to this statement by Mr. Saul. Um, and because you say that you should be able to present both sides of a situation if you understand the situation. I completely agree. The, the, the logical refutation of this would be, well, they do have a negative consequence. If, you, uh, if you're a politician and you screw up really bad, then you don't get reelected. Well, that's the best I can do, and the the problem is that it's not a very good response. Because first of all, I'd point out that we have people right now running their mouths in the House and the Senate about how they were involved with the Clinton impeachment, and, and that makes them qualified to tell you what they should be doing in the Trump impeachment. If you were a congressman or a senator while Bill Clinton was president, I promise you, you've screwed up a lot, and you've been wrong a lot between then and now, and here you are, still in government, with not paid a price of even losing your seat. In many cases, many of these people have moved from the House, where they had some power, to the Senate, where they have more. And in all cases, anybody that's been around that long has increased their power in either body, simply by becoming senior, getting on committees, etc. So that right there shows that that doesn't necessarily work. But the reality is the majority of people who serve one term in the Senate or two terms in the House, when they get out, become lobbyists with an average starting salary um, in excess of a half a million dollars a year. So you lose a $150,000 job and get a half a million dollar a year job. Yeah. Yeah, you paid a price. Our entire system is predicated on the fact that our government officials are largely immune to most things that we're not. And when they're not immune to something, they're able to pass a law that says they are. They're immune to or exempt from or what have you. They bear no real cost for being wrong. Look at the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Trillions of dollars gone. No weapons of mass destruction. 
well, we were wrong. Sorry, we have to stay here and continue to blow shit up and get our kids screwed up physically and mentally and bring them home and then kind of wash our hands of them and say they're heroes and say that we really care about them but not really do anything and leave them languish and watch as, you know, 22 of them a day commit suicide and we have to keep doing that. Whoopsie! No one went to jail. No one got fired. No one paid a price. No one paid a price. President came in, got behind it, pushed it, convinced us that we needed to do it. New president came, just kept right on doing it, didn't he? I laughed when people told me, well, the one good thing about the Obama administration, we'll get out of the Middle East and we'll get out of Afghanistan. I was like, <laughs> okay, sure, sure we will. It's hard to imagine a more stupid or dangerous way of making decisions than by putting those decisions in the hand of people who pay no price for being wrong. And you can say all you want, because I know where this goes. That's why we need term limits. You know what? If you people that say you wanted term limits wanted term limits, you wouldn't keep reelecting the same people over and over and over and over and over again. We have a society where we have just decided that it's okay to just pay homage to this stuff. And pretend we mean it when we say things like liberty and freedom, even though we don't, even though we're afraid of those. And that's one reason I am running for president. And you can see the website now. It's at Spearco2020.com. Unlike Joe Biden, I can actually get it out if I go 2020. com, And you can stay uh, up with the campaign there. Uh, I am dead serious. I am an official, non-official candidate. And the reason I, I, I put it that way is if I officially register as a candidate, I have to do paperwork and do disclosures and all that, and I'm not doing that. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not representing any party, and I don't want I, – I am legitimately running, but I do not want to get elected. You can't donate money to me. You can't give me money. You can't buy influence with me. And I'm going to say right up front, if by some stupid miracle – If I was elected president, I realize I'm wholly unqualified for the job, and I would immediately resign the presidency after naming a vice president that I thought could do a decent job. I don't know who, maybe Ron Paul. If We'll worry about that if it looks like it's going to matter. I don't think it's going to matter. It is a publicity stunt. But it's much bigger than just a publicity stunt. It is designed, because it's a publicity stunt, I expect lots of people to see at least one or two of my videos or hear one or two audio snippets. And I want to punch the average American metaphorically in the throat. You guys that have listened to the show a long time know I'm pretty good at verbal throat punches. I really am where you're like, he's wrong. Because, uh, and you just, when you start thinking about it, you're like, shit. I hate him. He's such a jerk because he's right again. And damn it, I don't like this. I want that experience for more Americans. I want to challenge their belief when they say, we're the freest nation in the world. I love liberty. I want to challenge that. If you love liberty, how come you want me to take something from somebody else so that you can have what you want? And I think it's something that can make a difference. I don't think I'm going to win. I don't think I'm going to, like, I don't think that I will even be reported on election night as, hey, some clown named Spirico got, like, 10,000 votes. I, don't, I think Mickey Mouse will get more votes than I will. Who knows, though? I just want to start a conversation about what freedom and liberty really are and make people uncomfortable with the fact 
that when they say it, they generally don't mean it. So check it out, Spiracle2020.com. Next up, I want to talk about the space program. And I want to talk about, like, a reason the government, you know, you would think that we would be hearing a lot about this. I mean, I bet the average American has no idea that right now we are on track to meet the plan, and the plan is to have people on the moon again by 2024. The plan is also to have an established, sustainable living condition on the moon by 2028. In other words, that groups of people could go to the lunar surface and stay for extended periods of time. There's been extensive mapping done. We used to think the moon was devoid of water. We've actually found out there's a shitload of water available on the moon. We're developing technologies to take the elements that are on the moon and use them to 3D print building materials to build structures on the moon. Just There's just so much going on. And I'll, I'll tell you, there's two reasons I think this. One, and I think this has a lot to do with the media in general not, not being excited about this. Donald Trump has a lot to do with it. Hate him, love him, call him orange, call him, you know, whatever, ass clown, you know, whatever. Does it, you can't, just because you don't like somebody, doesn't mean that you get to change the truth. Trump gave a directive to NASA, who was like, yeah, eventually we're getting back to me. Uh-uh. I want it done by 2024. Now, I totally believe the orange man ego is at play here. He believes he's going to get reelected. He wants to be in office when we, when we set foot on the moon. He wants to claim credit for it. Fine. Whatever. All politicians do shit out of ego. It's one reason I don't like all politicians. Doesn't matter. Have the balls to step up and say, hey, get it done. Another little thing the media wouldn't tell you. You know that great misogynist Trump? Do you know what he said? We're going to put a man and woman on the moon. The next time a human being steps foot on the moon, there will be a male and a female. I think they plan to land near the south pole of the moon for one reason or another. They're building a thing called Gateway. Gateway is basically going to be a space station similar to the space station that orbits the Earth that orbits the moon. That allows craft to come and dock and then take landers down to the moon and back up. And, of course, the entire reason for all of this is to develop the technology and developing a launch point for missions to Mars, which they expect to be happening in the 2030s. So I think part of why you're not hearing about it is because the media hates the orange man and it makes him look good. But I'll tell you another thing. There's something that's been lost in my own lifetime. And that is that as bad as government has always been, the individual was championed in the 70s and still into the 80s. The individual was championed, not the collective. The space program is, in the words of Penn Jillette, a conundrum. Because as much as, this is what Penn said, and this is a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. As much as we hate government, the space program really is good for everyone, and it's the coolest thing that the government has ever done. And I feel the same way. But what the what the, the space program does, we, we, we talk about it from a collective viewpoint of the world working together for something, and that's great. But it does champion the individual. Because not only is it, there is this astronaut, in, in the instance of you know Neil Armstrong, walking on the moon. There's this one man, and we're all looking at him. It creates dreams in people's minds and hearts. When I was a little kid in the 70s, 
Probably every other kid I knew, like me, wanted to be an astronaut. And we didn't want to be an astronaut to get in something that looked like an airplane and circle our own planet. We looked at those moon landings with an S for those who think it was all fake. You just if you're a, we didn't go to the moon tard, don't bother me. Just go away, crawl under a rock, bye bye. Um, we watched those movies and we dreamed that we could do that. That we could go into space. And in the 80s, we watched our dreams die. We're going to send robots to Mars and Jupiter and Venus. We're not going to the moon anymore. It wasn't, hey, these more long-distance dangerous things, we'll let machines do. And we'll keep, we'll keep building on what we have. No, we'll just stop. And it went through the 90s and the early 2000s. And in that time, not only did that viewpoint of young people die, the entire concept of the championing of the, cur the courage of an individual to be able to do something incredibly meaningful died as well. They have no interest in talking about this now. It should be, it should be front page news. We should be hearing something about this every day. I don't even get why the orange man's not talking about it more. I guess he does, and they don't cover it, but he doesn't talk about it that much. He certainly doesn't use the opportunities that he has as president to champion it more. I don't know, maybe he's smarter than I think, and he's holding on to this, and he's going to make a big push with it once the general election st starts, because it's something he has. And he, I mean, I, I do think that if politicians are smart, the best things they got going for them, they don't really start razzing them up until pretty close to the election because our memory is pretty short in this country. But I think we need to be thinking about this more. I look at people, or children like my grandson and my granddaughter, and I remember being a little kid, sitting in my grandfather's Lazy Boy, rocking it back all the way like I was in a spaceship when I was like six years old getting up and drinking Tang, because that's what astronauts did, and dreaming one day of being an astronaut. And I think of how hollow a childhood is without a dream like that in it. And I, for one, am grateful that we're on this journey, that we're going to do this, that it's being done, that it's not just talk. And I really hope that doesn't change. I just thought I'd like to kind of talk to you guys about that. I have a video I put on Facebook today that I will link to in the show notes for you so you can take a look at this stuff. It is, and the page of the, on the NASA website where they talk about the entire timeline of the mission. It's pretty amazing. I wish only that I were a young man again and could be part of it. I'll just say that. All right, next up, um, the, the Cherokee Nation is making available this year some rare seeds uh, that are very limited quantities. Um, they're not. They're not rare. Most of them aren't anyway. Um, but they are cool, and they are something that you, you might want to know about. I have a link to the article. I mean, some of the things that are being touted as rare is like the Cherokee-colored corn. You know the glass gem corn? That's, that's what it is. 
I mean, it's on the cover of, well, it is, and they do call Baker Creek rareseeds.com, right? But it's marketing. It's not rare. It's not like you can, the Trail of Tears beans, uh, uh, amazing, but they've been around forever and a day, uh, not just because they're old, but because they're, they're widely known. Uh, there is one called Georgia Candy Roaster Squash. I'm not familiar with that one. And it might be something I try to grow, grow this year myself. Uh, there's a variety of gourds and some corn beads, um, some native plants, such as American basket flower, jewelweed, which I'm, I'm sorry, jewelweed's not rare. If you live in the Northeast, you know exactly what jewelweed is. It grows right next to poison ivy, and it's a natural remedy for poison ivy. And wild senna, S-E-N-N-A. Uh, wild senna is a plant that I think should be grown more. And it's the main reason I wanted to talk about this today. Um, it is a nitrogen fixer. It's in the pea family. Um, it is a great food for things like wild turkeys and other birds and other uh, wild animals and wildlife. It's a shrub that grows up to about six to eight feet. It can be maintained a lot lower. It is an amazing plant for chop and drop in food forest systems. It's widely adaptable, grows throughout most of the United States. Or I should say, it can grow throughout most of the United States, not that it does grow. And it's a, it is not, it is absolutely not, uh, I repeat again, not rare. Um, I had a plant show up here, and I'm like, That kind of looks fern-like, legume-like. Like, what is this? And I started texting pictures back to Nick Ferguson and all. And finally, the two of us going, it's it's set up. Well, I didn't plant it. He didn't plant it. Nobody, I don't came here and planted it. I, and it's here. And it grows. And it showed up on its own, kind of like the herb cleavers did last year. Just showed up. So it's not rare, but boy, it is worth having around. Um, my, I, I don't have a lot of it because when it's young, The ducks tear it up. I don't know if they would keep eating and if it got big, uh, but I've got a couple that have gotten big enough to reseed, so it keeps coming back. So it is, it does exist here on its own. And uh, but it is certainly something you might want to look at. And I, I do think that it makes a lot of sense to consider planting some things that aren't necessarily for a direct harvest and that are unusual. And to promote better biodiversity. So when I say these things aren't rare, don't take that the wrong way. In some ways, the term is absolutely correct. They are rare in that you generally don't see them. And a lot of these things are native to our continent. And that biodiversity has become rare in that it's not as distributed as it used to be. And I, I think if you actually care about environmentalism, real environmentalism, this is one very easy step. Uh, that you can take. Uh, next up, I got an email here from Marty, and Marty says, what do you think about the new Micro Roni, R-O-N-I, Roni? Uh, is it a worthwhile addition? Do you think it's an advantage? Looking forward to hearing what you think. Thanks, Marty. So Roni, as I said, is a, is a carbine uh, conversion system. This one effectively is not a carbine conversion system because it's not, a it's not officially a carbine or then it would be an SBR and then you would need a tax stamp, which you don't because of a loophole and because of current ATF attitude toward something known as a pistol brace. But the way this thing works is I'm going to call it what it is. Okay. And I've just explained how it's not what I'm saying, but yet it is, okay? It is a device that you can take a standard-issue Glock handgun, very quickly, with no tools, put it inside a casing, 
and turn it into a short-barreled carbine. And when I say short-barreled, I mean what would generally require a tax stamp. It folds up. It's very small. With Glock, of course, you have extended high-capacity magazine capability. And the way that it's designed in the forward-hand grip, you can put a second magazine. Now, that magazine won't feed and fire, but very quickly you could drop the mag that is in, in the uh, pistol itself and swap it, and then that way you have two magazines on the weapon itself. It is quite short-barreled. It is not uber short-barreled in that where your hand sits on the forward grip, it is at least a couple inches back from the muzzle. Some of the ones that I've seen for the Glocks and for other handguns, basically that's not the case. Like, I mean, your hand is right there at the edge. It's something you need to be aware of. People who have never shot SBRs or anything like this type of configuration, you got to think, because we have this kind of, you know, with a long gun, this natural inclination to kind of put our hand wherever we're comfortable on a forearm. And you do that the wrong way with one of these and you're blowing the ends of your fingers off. And the ones that don't have kind of a, a stop point that says, this is it, I, I don't like that because I see the potential for missing fingertips pretty high when the wrong person picks one up that's never really had any experience with them. Um, this one doesn't have that. has a nice, good forward front grip. Okay, love it. It doesn't have an advantage. In other words, like if 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 I was in some sort of active suitor situation, responding as a private citizen, and assuming that I had the time to 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 take a sidearm and put it into this device, or assuming that I kept it set up that way, like behind a truck seat or something, and I had to engage someone trying to kill me, does this give me an advantage? Absolutely. Accuracy follow up. Shot capacity, yes, it does. Is it practical to gain that advantage? Maybe. Because you ain't going to be walking around with this thing on your hip. Okay, So it's going to have to be stowed somewhere, or you're going to have to actually do the conversion. Is it fun? Absolutely. Is it worth the money? It's 200 bucks. If you own a Glock, it kind of seems like you should just get one. Here's the but. This whole thing rides on the current determination by the ATF about what constitutes a pistol brace and how you can use a pistol brace. And the, the ATF's been in and out on this. And so when they first came out, they said, yeah, that's fine. And then they said, well, no, it's not. Well, yes, it is. Yes, it is, but you can't actually put it to your shoulder. Yes, it is, and you can, but you shouldn't show it off. And... It doesn't become an SBR just because you put the brace to your shoulder, but if you specifically use it that way, then yes, it does. But what is specific, we don't really know. What we do know is this. Right now, if you were arrested for possession of this thing, unless something changes, and that's where we're headed, but if unless something changes, even if you were arrested by a cop who is just an ignorant bastard, didn't know any better or didn't know any better, and they tried to bring charges against you, they're not going to stick. You can go right to the ATF website and look at their policy. I have a link for you in the show notes, and it says, no, this is not possession of this is not illegal. 
if it were used in the commission of a crime and they had conclusive proof that the person who committed the crime with it used it in the manner in which to make it a rifle by shouldering it, they probably would do them up on that as an additional charge. If it were used in the commission of a crime, even inadvertently, they may try to make that link. What I mean by that is, you're busted for burglary and it's in your trunk. Okay? There's a lot of things like that. It's in the trunk of the car. Guy's busted for burglary. He had a weapon during the crime. Was in his possession? Well, it was in his car. We don't know if he intended to use it or not. It's an add-on. You know, that type of thing. So, general day-to-day use, you're clean for now. Here's my problem. You're investing in something that the law can change on without it going through Congress, just like bump stocks. So when bump stocks came out, people were like, oh, I'm getting a bump stock. I'm like, I'm not. And they're like, why not? I'm like, they're going to ban them eventually. But they're legal, and they can't because I'm like, they're going to ban them eventually. My opinion was based on, I went to SHOT Show the year that they became a thing, and I shot one in both an AR-15 and an AR-10. And when I shot the one in the AR-10, I got that look on my face that I hadn't had since I was a soldier. Yeah, it's cool and it's fun. And people say, well, it's not as good as, you know, full auto, but it's, you know, you could bump fire without them. Yeah, but you know what? When they're set up right and they're running right, they fire almost exactly like full auto. I understand the mechanics are not the same, but I looked at that and said, it is only a matter of time until an administration uses existing law to ban this. So when Trump banned it, people thought I was for the ban, and I wasn't. I just knew the ban was going to happen, and I knew the ban was legal and constitutional. Because I expected it from day one, and I refused to invest my money. This has a similar but not as significant a risk of becoming made illegal through the stroke of a pen without an act of Congress, though. The ATF has changed multiple times on this. And what they've issued is their final opinion. There's nothing that requires that to be their final opinion. Uh, some some idiot in the future could commit a mass shooting using one of these things. And then some future president can direct the ATF to close that loophole. With air quotes, loophole, like Dr. Evil again. Loophole, right? It's just a risk. So you're spending 200 bucks on something that's really cool, that works really good that could be made illegal. So the way I would put it is you have to be at peace with the fact that this thing could be made illegal. I don't think the odds are high, but I'd put it at like over the next 20 years, 50-50. Cuz it's an easy layup for somebody that wants to look like they're outlaws. So I would not buy a bump stock when they were available because I knew better. This I would buy. I don't know if I'm going to, but I would. Uh, that's that's the best I can do for you, trying to be open and honest about it there. Next up, Tactical Redneck says, i got a question on how you determine what nutrients you're going to add and where you're going to set your water level for hydroponics. I've got five-gallon buckets and lids laying around in an empty bedroom with uh, lots of windows. So the dead of the winter just seems cheap not to try a couple tomatoes and peppers. But I've always grown in soil, so I've never had much anything right off the bat. So without the nutrients already there, I'm tempted to just dump lots of everything. And then what the plant sucks, half the water out, just keep the water level half the bucket. Also, I'm not planning on transplanting, so if I change my mind, it will just have to be sacrificed to the plant goods and cut off. Thanks, Tactical. All right, so first of all, what Tactical's talking about doing here is uh, crack key 
hydroponics, where we plant the plant, it starts growing, the water level drops, the roots chase the water level down, and if we're doing something long-term, like a pepper or tomato, then, you know, yeah, what you're going to want to do is add nutrient. At some point, you may even need to drain and refill, because you get concentrations of salts. The other thing is that plant, as, your, as Tactical was saying, takes all the stuff that it does want and it leaves the stuff that it doesn't. So at some point we need to, to, to refresh that fluid. And that's one of the downsides with Kratky, by the way, because you end up with a significant amount of fluid to change and it can be difficult. You know, If you have a system with a pump in it, how do you change your fluid? Well, vent off the pump somewhere, turn it on and drain it with the pump. See how simple that is? So, let's start with the first part. Nutrient. I think the nutrient that most people should start with is the three-part master blend nutrient. It's all synthetic, icky, gicky, blah, 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 whatever. Okay? When you realize how little you use, I think it'll, it'll make a lot of sense to people. Um, as to how much you use, the formula is well-known, it's published, etc. So, for... Vegetative stage, which is kind of your initial growth stage, per gallon you're going to use um, the Master Blend 41838 uh, at 2 grams, calcium nitrate at 2 grams, and Epsom salt at 1 gram. And this is why this matters for, for tactical situation. You need to increase the nutrient for plants that are going to fruit and flower after the vegetative growth stage. You need to increase that. And the, the, the recipe, I guess, for that would be the master blend itself at 3 grams, calcium nitrate at 3 grams, Epsom salts at 2 grams. And that gives you a complete mineral and nutrient profile to grow plants. It's easy and it's simple. Here's the caveat. The calcium nitrate is not really good about being water-soluble. And the less acidic your water is, the more that becomes the case. Using rainwater, I have no trouble getting it to dissolve. And what I do, some people mix two different solutions and put them back together. I just dissolve the calcium nitrate first. It is the one that has the most trouble dissolving, so I put it in first. I take these numbers, I multiply them by four. And I do that because I take a five-gallon bucket, and when you look at like a Lowe's five-gallon bucket, you have kind of that bottom... Uh, ring where they have a reinforcement on the lid where you give a few inches of uh, headroom. You fill up to the, where that bottom ring is. You can kind of see through the, the bucket. That's four gallons in most buckets. I don't know. I can't speak for all buckets, but I mean, I took a one gallon jug and filled up a gallon of water at a time and filled it up and said, nah, right about there where I thought it was. The reason I do that is it's the most amount I can mix at one time without making a mess. I take and I put the, again, so I would, since I'm doing four gallons, I use Four grams, I'm sorry, eight grams of calcium nitrate. I dump that in and I take a mortar mixer on the end of a drill and, and I run that. Then I throw in the two grams of the master blend again and then I, or the eight grams of master blend for that much. And then I throw in the four grams of Epsom salt and I use a scale to measure it. I like master blend for this because you should use an EC meter, parts per million, blah, 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 blah. There's all these conversions, and none of the meters actually work by the things that are specified by the manufacturer because they're like European numbers, and we have American numbers. And blah, 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 blah. We know that that formula gives you nutrient that grows plants. So what I like about that compared to some of like the Texas tomato food, which I like, you know, it doesn't say, hey, just use X tablespoons to a gallon. 
You end up having to, to figure this out. Now, I do have a EC meter, and the EC thing has all these things you have to factor in for conversions and what have you, but I do know that parts per million is how we actually derive that, and it in this growth stage for plants, you want to have around 600, 500 parts per million. That, of course, is variable because what's your water starting at? So my water out of my well with all the calcium in it and everything is hard, and it's pretty high in parts per million. So if I used my well water, I'm going to end up with a much higher number. If I use rainwater, which I do, then I'm going to see almost the exact result of what I put into it, minus a little bit that doesn't want to dissolve because it wants to fight. When I use the 2-2-1 base recipe per gallon using Master Blend, I get right at like 540 parts per million out of my rainwater. I mean, it's exactly where that it's supposed to be. And if you jack that up, so this is your problem tactical. You're trying to do cracky for tomatoes and peppers. You're going to have to change out that affluent at some point. And that's going to be when you get enough growth and you want to go into the flowering and fruiting stage. Now, you said they're not for transfer. My question would be, why not? And why not just take them outside when the weather gets nice? Then you can just find a suitable place to get rid of your existing affluent, dump it, and add more. How or where to set the water level. When you do Kratky, the prevailing wisdom is you want to set that water level so it just touches the bottom of the net cup. In my trials, I wholeheartedly disagree. I disagree. I think you want to come up about two-thirds the height of the net cup. And watching people's experiments to prove that cracky in some situations doesn't work as good as aerated is why. This is why. When I've done that, and everything from tomatoes to lettuce to basil, name it, it takes quite a while for that water level to get down to where most people started at. By the time it does that, you have a lot of root already touching water. And you get, it just looks to me like a bigger, cleaner root mass that way because roots air prune. So you have some roots that get to the water before the water level drops when you're just barely there. And those roots chase that water down just like they're supposed to. Okay. But all the roots that come out of the side of your media that don't touch the water, they just kind of stop. And unless you get enough humidity in there, like from an air stone, that's why air stones work. It's not just... It's not just the air in the water. It's the, the, the mist it causes. You, you, if you've ever looked at the, you know, the surface of water where you're using an air stone, you have all those little bubbles of humidity that fly off into the air and touch the roots and nutrate the roots. Well, if you, if you let the roots touch the water, more roots end up chasing down. You get a bigger root net. So that's, that's the approach I would take. Now, once you've got a big root net, you do need to pay attention to not letting it run out. One way you can do this, you can actually plumb feed lines to them and put a float valve in. That's And, and Dr. Kratke does this on his, uh, on, his, on his YouTube channel. He shows you how to build uh, float valves for a dollar. I don't know that I highly endorse Kratke-style aquaponics for tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, things like that. It does work. People do it. It absolutely works. But due to the nature of wanting to go from one affluent to another affluent, 
having to make some changes to long duration, some sort of a simple return to sump deep water system actually works really good. We don't have to do media and Dutch buckets and stuff like that. I'm probably going to grow tomatoes this year. I'm going to use the Commander. I think it's Commander or Champion or something. The black and yellow buckets that come from Lowe's and Home Depot. They're five gallons, but they're squared instead of rounded, and they're really, really heavy duty. And I'm probably going to put, I don't know, a dozen tomatoes in pots like that. And instead of doing a Dutch bucket, I'm going to do a deep water recirculating system for them out of my aviary. Because I have a great place to try this out and check it out. Um, you can try it, but I would plan to replant. I would use the biggest net cups you can get, you know, that makes sense for you anyway, like four inches in the lids of your thing. I would trim out a whole bunch of the net cup strands so that your roots can be extracted easier and I would plan on planting them outdoors or I would plan on moving them to a more appropriate outdoor hydro system. The best stuff I can see you growing indoors is short term crops lettuces, basils I'm trying fennel right now, spinach as long as you germinate the seeds before you put them in uh, in the paper towel method, things like that um, dill, all kinds of stuff. There's so much stuff that does so good with this. I think it makes sense to focus on that. Now, um, there's a gentleman, Oki Jim, Oki Joe, something, Oki something, that's made, and I've read a bunch of them on the air, some incredibly useful um, comments in the blog after Hydro Shows. Oki James, I think, is his, his handle on the blog. And I reached out to him and said, hey, put in a guest form. He has, Dorothy has it, she'll be booking him. So he's been doing this a lot longer than me. We're going to have him on. I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of this stuff. But uh, I have a video of how to mix the hydroponic fertilizer uh, that I'll put in the, the show notes as well. And I'll link to the Master Blend product that I use and the tomato Texas Tomato Food liquid product I use as well. But I'm, I'm, I'm starting to favor the solid because it's a lot less expensive. And while the Texas tomato food does use some organic product, it's still using synthetic nutrient anyway. So anyway, um, I'm going to be working. I'm just like, I'm doing everything indoors right now. I'm playing with the, the vertical farm and all that stuff. I put a really cool flood and drain system for microgreens into it. Um, and it's just easier to stick to the knowns. As I start building stuff out this spring out of my greenhouse and my aviary, I'm going to be playing with systems that move toward a full organic with hydro which is basically going to be fishless aquaponics, using things like worms, some flood and drain, some media to create a nitrogen cycle. And I actually don't even think it's that hard. I think it's probably the easiest of the, of the you know, aquaponics with fish, pure hydro, this thing in the middle that's all organic and uses aquaponics components for a nitrogen cycle, but there's no fish to die. I think it's the easiest thing to do. And more on it will come shortly, but... For your indoor experiments, start with Master Blend. We know it works. It works really good. And it's not the environmental catastrophe people think that it is. It forms a baseline and develops a skill set that then you can take and do what you want to with. Um, Jerry in West Virginia said, Good morning, Jack. Listening to episode 2579, the gentleman speaking about building a 5-inch raised bed over grass mentioned using sticks that he would bury. Uh, something I had thought about and I have done in a couple of my beds is go out in the woods and find punky logs, kick them apart, and use a spongy wood as an addendum to my wicking beds. It also brings lots of microbiota uh, that benefit them having, uh, benefit them. Have a great day, Jack, Jerry in West Virginia. Jerry, this absolutely is a good technique. 
And the guy that wrote in basically was going to put, um, build a raised bed box out of two by six. So you end up about, with about a five inch deep raised bed and put it over top of grass without sod busting. And I said, if you do that, you're going to grow a bed full of grass. He also wanted to bury wood, i.e. hugel culture, but not dig a hole. So you're just going to put dirt on top of wood. And I said, you know, if you really small stray stuff like that, it might benefit some, but you can't do hugel culture because you don't have enough cover. You know, if you put four inches of wood in there, you end up with what? An inch and a half of dirt? You know, so it's, it's, it's probably not the best way to go. However, no matter what you do, using rotted wood, especially from like the forest, is an incredibly good thing to do. Because it is an inoculation of the system. And this is where I said there's a fancy name for it. Indigenous microorganisms, or IMO. So, it, lots of cultures do this, but the Koreans really developed very specific IMO techniques. And if you go to uh, YouTube and search for something like IMO gardening or IMO Korean gardening, you'll find lots of videos on different types of formulas that we can actually make to capture indigenous microorganisms. And, you know, for the, you have, if you have knowledge of something like a, a, a grass has a specific type of indigenous microorganisms that it encourages, that means if you take this, and they usually do it with like rice holes and things like that, we can take that and put that near bamboo. And we know we're going to get a culture that is somewhat in this one realm, and that's really good for this one plant. That's all fine and well. But if you go out into the woods and you find, like he said, like these punky, rotted, shredded things, you're going to get a lot of that activity. When we did our hugel culture beds in Arkansas, it's exactly what I did. Everything that went in those was rotted, nasty wood. I just drove my truck up and down the mountain. All my neighbors were cool. They just would go in the woods and drag these logs out and throw them in the truck. And a lot of them thought we were kind of crazy until they saw like the first year. I had, and I had pepper, I had jalapeno pepper plants taller than me. Honest to God. I had pepper plants that were that big and it would rain and they had so many peppers on them Branches the length of my arm covered in peppers would end up weighing so much from all the additional water weight they would just break off. And I'd pick up a branch off of a one-year-old pepper plant, not even a year old, six-month-year-old pepper, six-month pepper plant that looked like a, a normal person's pepper, the entire plant, and covered in peppers. I've got a picture, I don't know if I can find it anymore, but it was on Facebook, of an island that we had in our kitchen that was, I think it was a six-foot by five-foot island, and it's just mounded from one end to the other with jalapeno peppers off of those plants. So, yeah, this works. And it works because fungus and microorganisms that break things down belong in your garden. And a way you can do this and kind of build up a whole collection of these little guys is the technique that I learned from Nick Ferguson. And that is, yeah, you go out and you find your rotted wood and stuff, bring it home and start making a pile, kind of, sort of, kind of like a compost pile. But keep it damp, not wet, and keep it in the shade and put a tarp over it. And every time you go somewhere in the woods, if you find just a few, little bit more material, keep adding it to that pile and keep building up all that forest fauna of microorganisms. And then when you're, you know mulching your bed or building a bed, crumble it up and broadcast it on the surface and put your mulch on top of it. 
but burying it, that's what I did, and that works too. So it, I think it's a really good way to build up a lot of biological diversity in your garden. And it's a low-tech, lazy gardener's way of doing IMO. So I just thought I'd add that in for you. Uh, John from Missouri said, to the guy that wanted to wait to dispatch a deer, some carriers around here have a dog stick, so a stick with a Y to fend off dogs if needed. So a threaded handle portion w with a knife can be threaded into it, and you have a spear, which gives you distance and therefore more safety, John in Missouri. So I thought about this. Cold Steel makes a knife called the Bushman. It's a very inexpensive, very heavy-duty Carbon steel knife. Um, it's got a good black and nice finish on it, but it is a lower-end carbon steel, and it will rust incredibly fast if you don't keep it oiled. That's just my little addition on that one. Um, all carbon steel does is but these things. Like The reason I know this, I had one, and I went down to Ron Hood's spring thing that long ago that it would be, and there was... Uh, we, we had a scorpion got into place, and I took the, the blade and I just like whacked the scorpion's tail off with it and whacked the scorpion in half in the damp grass, put it back in its scabbard, and it was rusted by morning. I mean, it had been used like one time for half a second, and it rusted immediately. But it works, and it's cheap. And it, the handle is specifically designed so you can take and put it on the end of a, a stick and improvise a spear. This is a good way to kill a deer on the side of the road. If, is, if the animal can't get up, and honestly, we shouldn't be killing deer if it can get up, um, it may be able to survive if it can get up and go. It will work. You do have to know what you're doing. And the best thing to do in that scenario, because now you're stabbing, you're not cutting. So a stab wound to the heart. Okay? Two things. One... Sometimes an animal that seems like it can't get up can. There is still a danger here. A deer, we don't generally think of as a dangerous animal, but a deer can kill you or seriously injure you, especially if you're on the side of a road where interaction with that animal may actually push you into the road and get you hit by something like a semi, because that will kill you all the way dead twice. So there's that. So you really, I mean, I'm careful about saying things like this because... Just because I could do something or I would do something does not mean I recommend other people do it. There's another thing here. There's a component to this. If you've hunted your whole life, it may not be as big a deal. If you've dispatched um, livestock, you know, you butchered your own chickens or whatever, it may not be a big of a deal. Taking a life is always serious, and there are some ways of taking a life that have a much deeper imprint on our souls. And that's the only word I, I, I know how to use for this. There are certain things that we can never forget. And they can have psychological effects on us. And you should be sure, if you're going to equip yourself to do this, instead of deferring it to somebody else, that you can deal with that. And it's not going to permanently leave you with some feeling that you don't want in yourself. And I think no less of anybody that would say, I'm not doing it because I can't. I totally respect the person being willing to think that way and not putting themselves in a way. And, I mean, the way I can compare it is back when all this shit started in the Middle East and some of our people were taken hostage, there were some videos that were put out of people being beheaded. And with all the things I've seen in the world, I wasn't afraid to watch that video. It disturbed 
the living shit out of me. And it took me a long time to get it out of my heart the way that that was done. And it's not the same thing, but it's the same effect. And I just think that when it comes to dispatching animals, you need to know yourself before you engage in something like this. Because the other side of it is, it has to be done with quickness, precision, and intent. Or it's, it's, it's just adding to an animal's suffering. So if it's done poorly, if it's done wrong, if a strike misses its mark, if you don't know what you're doing in trying to save the animal, you can actually put it through more misery before its life has ended. And so you need to have a certain willingness to act very intently And very, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for here, um, efficiently, but that's not either. Without hesitation. There can be no hesitation. It has to be precision and done. Or it's, it's probably better that you leave it to somebody else. And even if you're the kind of person that if you did it well, you would be okay with it. If you do it poorly, it's going to sit inside of you. The fact that you care enough to even think man, I don't want this thing to lay here and suffer, means that you care for it. And I, I think a lot of people that don't hunt have a hard time understanding how much hunters care for animals. We are a predator, we know our place, but we don't want anything to suffer. We take pride in what we do, and we don't kill indiscriminately. We kill for a purpose. To feed ourselves and our families. To control a predator problem. If you do it poorly, it'll sit with you. I know people who were lifelong archery hunters that wounded one deer with like a gut shot and quit because they couldn't live with it. So just know what you're putting yourself into in any situation psychologically before you do so. Probably more than I needed to say, but if it saves one person from doing it the wrong way, you know, and again, legalities, legalities, legalities. Make sure you know what you're getting yourself into from a legal standpoint in any of these situations. I'm going to be quick on this one. This is from Random in Minnesota. He says, Jack, I have a question for you. I, uh, or an expert council member, uh, I want to try CBD oil for mild anxiety, some temper problems that are nonviolent, and sleep issues. I'm also in, a two, in two professions, so drug testing, one annual, one random. I can't have any THC. Is there a safe product that you can recommend? Thanks, Random. Random, oh, I hate this. I hate this. The only product that I would risk trying if I were you is a 100% distillate of CBD. The only people we work with that I know do that is Food Forest Farms, Brian from Washington State, who does coffee that way. He does coffee with a pure CBD distillate. So you're not getting the benefits or the risks of what's known as the entourage effect. To regulate a product as a CBD product in the United States so that it's not a violation of federal law, it has to be less than 0.03% THC. Occasionally, some of the stuff does test a little higher, and even a 0.03%, if used consistently, can build up enough THC in your body where it's not going to ever make you high. It can make you pop positive on a blood test. Everything I've read, everything everybody says, 
if it's a pure CBD distillate, meaning there's nothing, there's not even not only just CBD, there's not any other cannabinoids, like because there's a lot of cannabinoids. It's not just CBD and THC. There's zero because it was distilled down to CBD. And Brian, who does put it in coffee by request, um, used it for two reasons. One, because it's a it's basically a, a white powder at that point by the time they're done with it, not an oil. It when you when you make a coffee with it, you don't get like um, you know a bud flavoring oil slick on the the top of your coffee. It stays in. You don't taste it. It's you, you get the benefit, but you don't get any of the taste, the smell, the aroma, any of that. Okay. He uses it exclusively because that way he's completely clean. He doesn't have to worry about any potential problems because let's say something slipped by, it's higher than .03, he mailed it, now it's federal, multi-state, just didn't want the risk. You should be okay, but this guy's worked in the cannabis industry for a long time, going back to when it was just medical in Washington State, and said, I wouldn't do it if I were you. So... If you're going to do it, you want to go with a product like that, but even the guy that makes his living off it that wants you to try it said, I wouldn't risk my profession here because I just don't know. Long term, I think this is something that's going to have to change. As it becomes more and more legalized, etc., it's going to have to change because it's become a level of discrimination. And if nothing else, what they're going to have to say is we have like a threshold level or something, or you can register as a CBD user and provide a sample of the product you're using or something. Like, but we're not there yet. I, I actually think eventually this whole thing, I, I think we will see a day, you know, barring some tragic event in my lifetime, I think we'll see a day where the, the, the marijuana, THC, all of it, it just becomes a non-issue. That no matter where you work, they can't test your blood for it and hold that against you for employment any more than they can test your blood for alcohol. They would have to prove that you were intoxicated on the job. You can't not hire somebody because they drink. Except it's a very, uh, for instance, the 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 soldiers that guard the tomb of the unknown soldier can't drink ever, even when they quit. They can't drink. There's some very rare exceptions like that, but you can, like it's obviously you can lose your commercial driver's license, a CDL, for being drunk driving. Like boom, gone, not getting it back type thing. But you can't test somebody and say, well, they drank alcohol, therefore they can't have this job. I think CBD, I think marijuana, cannabis is going to go there, but we're not there yet. I wouldn't do it, dude. I wouldn't. I hate. God, I hate saying that because it works so well for the things that you're asking about. And it has literally no side effects and no risks. But in your case, the risk is to your career. Um, next, uh, James says, I'd like to know what you think about using water out of the sump pump to water your garden, plants, etc. Um, my house is on an underground river, so my sump pump runs basically nonstop most of the year. This water just gets pumped out into a roadside ditch. I don't know if I could tap into uh, that 2-inch PVC and divert water to my garden beds to water 
uh, an orchard I plan to plant in my front yard. I figured when I use it to water plants, I would have a ball valve at the ditch and close it to create pressure feed. Uh, the branches would be the valves or timers or something. But here's a couple of my complications. One, my laundry empty machine empties into my sump. So does the worm bin. While we use basically generic deft from Kroger and very little bleach, I drive a fuel tanker for a living, so there's some nasty stuff on my clothing. The weenies are going to complain that having my laundry dump into my sump is illegal, but everybody in the country does it. Um, and they can't get over themselves. Uh, there really isn't another way to do it. Uh, the grass in my ditch grows like weeds on my sump water, but doesn't necessarily make it safe to eat. I don't know if using diverted water when we are sure we're not doing laundry would be a better idea. If the pipes would just be contaminated with whatever goes down them, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for everything you do, you jerk. James. Okay, so my view is that this probably isn't the best water to be putting on a vegetable garden. Trees for an orchard, I would say would be fine. If you want to use it to water a garden, I would say I would build some sort of a rebed system and treat this like gray water. And when it comes out the other end of that rebed system, it will be probably cleaner than most people's water coming out of their, their, their tap. So I, I can't go deep into that, but what I would kind of envision is you pump water up into some sort of elevated um, tank system made with reeds or some other aquatic plants. And as water moves through there, eventually where it discharges, that can go to somewhere that then maybe through some sort of micro-earthworks or something provides irrigation to your garden. And then you can set up some kind of a timer so that you don't constantly run through there because it needs time to, to, to get through a system like that. Or maybe set some sort of control valve so while the majority of the water still goes down the ditch or goes to your orchard, um, a, a, a small controlled flow goes through that reed system. So if you look up like reed bed and gray water treatment, that's the kind of thing I think would be the best for what you're describing. You also might want to really think about what type of detergent you're using. You might want to change that. The small amount of bleach occasionally doesn't concern me too much. Um, if you were using bleach all the time, like every day you did a row, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a, a load of whites and you were using a cup of bleach a day, I would, I would be concerned about that because you're, you're going to kill the very microorganisms that you need to do the work of breaking down the soaps and solvents and stuff like that. But I, I would say that you might be able to conceivably come up with a, a system big enough to run most of that water through. But you've got to really think about it And this is something that you might even, if you get me some more information on, maybe I can have some of our experts look at it and think about a specifically designed system for this. I think this is something Nick Ferguson would love to get his teeth into, for instance. All right, next up, John in Moore Park says, Koi Pond Power backup approximately one week during Southern California Power shutoff. A question for one of my next-door neighbors, and spelled next-door, N-E-X-T-D-O-R-R in one word. That's the... Website is like a local version of Facebook for your neighborhood. I really love Nextdoor. I think you should be on Nextdoor because if nothing else, it lets you know what your neighbors are like. In some cases, my neighbors are idiots. In some cases, my numbers are, my neighbors are great. And it's nice knowing who they are in advance in case you ever need them. Um, a question was, 
they're looking for options for the koi pond. Has anyone looked into installing permanent generator system that automatically kicks on when power goes out and runs on natural gas? We had one estimate that was astronomical, and we're not sure whether to pursue it. The power outages certainly aren't going to get any better, and I was worried about my koi pond not running for an extended period of time. John and Moore Park. So they say, I'm worried about my koi pond. So I want a great big, you know, 12 kilowatt natural gas generator. I think the price is astronomical. Well, number one, it's an expensive tool. It's an expensive install. And you're in California, so everything costs more, right? So there is that. Something like a sportsman's generator, a little 800-watt inverter generator, a few hundred bucks. It'll run a koi pond pump weeks. That's your, your best power backup investment you can make for yourself is a portable generator and learn how to use it and maintain it. I have a couple here. I was, I was actually gone. I was on vacation uh, this summer. And uh, Michael, Chef Michael, who takes care of cooking for us at their workshops, along with his wife, Teresa, um, was here house-sitting for me. We usually use him to house-sit because he's you know, really competent, capable, available, and just a great guy and somebody I can trust in that situation. Well, we had a major storm come through, and he was without power for like three days. Well, he just took my Troy Bill generator, blah, started plugging in extension cords, ran all my pumps, all my systems for three days. It's a $600 generator from Lowe's. I mean, and you can get one of those little sportsman's generators or what have you for, you know, 100 They go on sale sometimes for $149. He used that to run all my pumps inside my uh, fish tanks in the house. Kept everything alive, didn't lose hardly anything. So whether it's for your own backup power, no matter what it is, the most economical thing you can do is an inexpensive portable generator, and probably more than one, because two is one, one is none. Three is for me, four is even more, and five keeps you alive. Right? I mean, six is the kicks, seven is heaven, eight is great, nine is fine. Right? Like You can go as far as you want with that, but at least two. Start with one, learn how to use it, but quickly. See, what I would recommend is exactly what I, I, I try to recommend what I do. So I got a Troy-built 6,500-watt big generator. For like $5.99 or something. Way before it was on sale, bought it. The thing runs like a champ. Starts with one pull. Um, I would say if you have members of the, the household that are a little bit smaller frame, these generators that are pull start are not hard to start. It's not a strength thing. It is a technique thing. You kind of pull it, you feel a point, you kind of rock back and... But, you know, my wife had a hard time learning to start that generator. So make sure if you're not going to be there that they're able to start it on their own. Extension cords, keep them in Rubbermaid tubs with multiple adapters, and you can run just about anything. The other side of this. It might seem expensive to have a natural gas generator put in, but if you if I had natural gas to my house, instead of a 120-gallon propane tank, if I had unlimited natural gas to my house, I would have already installed a standby generator. There is nothing like the convenience of the lights go out, And then you wait a couple seconds and you're boom, 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 bah, and everything comes back on. There is a beauty to that, a simplicity to that. And the number one people who have who've been in and out on do I spend the money on it that I've recommended you should absolutely do this. They had two things. One, they weren't bringing a pig in. They were using, a, by a pig I mean a big tank. They were, they were using plumbed natural gas that they were already on service for. That makes it really easy to say you probably should. But they were... People who traveled that left like a wife at home who wasn't comfortable 
with starting up a standby generator and needed something. And the really good ones, they even run like maintenance cycles. They start themselves up, run for a little while, idle up, idle down, do that it's like every two weeks type thing, make, do a systems check for themselves and let you know if something's wrong. That is, that, is the, that is the best way to go, but the simplest, most economical, and solve 90% of your problems tomorrow by going and getting one in some cans of gas, just a portable electric generator. Before anybody asks, every portable generator you ever buy is going to come with an instruction manual that tells you to drive a grounding rod deep into the ground and connect it to it, and I have never seen anybody ever do it ever, 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 ever. It falls under cover your ass. I have been on hundreds, I'm not even exaggerating, hundreds of job sites using portable generators. I have never seen anybody ever, Infinity, ground a portable generator. I will not do it. I am not worried about it. It's not going to happen in my world. Um, it is a cover-your-ass thing. If you really, really, really think you need to, go get a fence pounder in a copper rod, and good luck. All right. With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you want to be on a show like this, remember, just email me, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and uh, put TSPC in the subject line. Maybe you will be. If you want to support this show and the work that we do, I have a really easy way that you can do that. We call it the painless way to support the Survival Podcast, because it doesn't cost you a dime. It doesn't cost you anything at all. All you have to do is, when you're going to shop online, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You do that, and you'll help support the show no matter what you eventually buy. Today's item of the day, though, because I do recommend things. I have reviews. Everything I review, I own it. I bought it. I spend my money on it, and I'd spend my money on it again, or I wouldn't ask you to. But today's item of the day is Chef Paul's Blackened Redfish Magic Seasoning. I learned about this from my uh, fishing guide friend, Omar Cotter. Um, he said, you got to try this on stripers. And I was like, you know what? A guy fishes for a living and has for 20 years. He does you do something with fish? Try it. This was awesome. And what he said it was Chef Paul's. And I went, oh, whatever. And I went to the store, and it's Chef Paul. And I looked at the picture, and I went, it's Dom DeLuise. I know who this guy is. He's not really. He kind of looks like Dom DeLuise. Chef Paul Prudhomme. I grew up watching this guy on PBS back when we had four channels, and PBS was one of them. And this guy, this seasoning and his method of cooking redfish, he's the, the source of blackened redfish. He's the reason redfish went from being a trash fish to having to have protections because the damn things were almost fished out because they tasted that good cooked this way. you got to try this stuff. I have a write-up for you. There's all kinds of things you can do with it beyond fish. It's really amazing on chicken. It's good on shrimp. But it does best on steaky, thick fish that can stand up to high heat. So red snapper, redfish, striper, mahi. If you can get your hands on it, my God, cobia. Uh, just fantastic on any kind of a fish like that. Does good with salmon, too. I'm not as big on blackening salmon as other things, but salmon's got that kind of meaty. Swordfish works really good. Shark works really good. Anything that's got that good body to it. I've done catfish with it, for instance. It's good. It just... It gets it overcooks. Like catfish is a delicate fish. It's really easy to overcook catfish. If you're gonna do catfish with it, I recommend doing like big channels or big blues and cutting steaks out of them instead of doing fillets. So they're a good uniform thickness 
and then do them on the grill that way. You would probably do better with a blackened catfish that way because that seems they seem to be a little bit more firm when you cook them that way than when taking a fillet and dropping it into a, a, a pan of butter, which is how you cook with this. Anyway, you got to give this stuff a try. I even in this write up, if you want to make it yourself. Paul put out some cookbooks uh, back in the 80s. He gave the recipe for this. I have exactly how to make it yourself, but I think when you look at everything that's in there, you'll realize that it's probably better to just go ahead and buy it because it's a really good deal. And he's got a bunch of good stuff. I've tried some of his other seasonings. They're all good, but nothing that just hits the home run that this stuff does for making blackened fish. It's just amazing, and you should learn the technique. I give the technique in my write-up. It will change your life just a little bit for the better to know how to do this to seafood. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. Song of the day today is Baker Street by Glenn Rafferty. Um, this song, if you're not sure if you've heard it or not, if you've ever listened to the Dave Ramsey show, the second you hear the sax intro, you'll be like, oh, that song. This song, though, has kind of like the saxophone piece and then kind of the quiet, bluesy music singing piece. And they have a juxtaposition because the sax is so powerful that I think a lot of people that have heard this song, they know this song, they don't even really get what it's about. Because you're just waiting for that, bah, 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 you know, that just that that sound of that sax. And it's just. That comes across, and I think the the reason Ramsey uses it, it's almost like like a like just like a best, kind of like exemplifying being the best of the best is what that sax makes you think of. But the song's totally the opposite. The song is about a guy that really just doesn't want to live in the city surrounded by people he hates. All he really wants to do is live in the woods, small cabin somewhere, small town somewhere, in nature. And the reason he can't, because he's a boozer, he's an alcoholic. He spends his night in the bars, getting drunk, one night stands, the whole rigmarole, and he wastes his whole life away, basically being a vagabond and a drunk, without realizing that that's what he is. And he keeps thinking, one day I'm going to go do this, but he never does. And... It's kind of told from the store, the, the perspective of the person himself and from the perspective of, you know, the bartender that sees the guy every night. And it's also told from a point at times where it sounds like he's talking about you. You might be thinking, I didn't waste my life. We all waste parts of our dash because of something. And what this guy wanted more than anything else in the world, supposedly was something pretty easy to make happen if you really focus your efforts on that one thing. I find it interesting sometimes that people that say they want that the most, you find out where they grew up, they say they want it, but they ran away from it. They already had it. All they had to do is stay where they were. They left. And they think for some reason it's complicated going back. It kind of reminds me of the discussion that we had uh, last week uh, on the show with our interview. Anyway, with that... It's been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Keep.